All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Bonanza, Brazil Resources, Helio Resources, Lucky Strike Resources, Metanor Resources, Millrock Resources, Palangio Exploration, and Rye Patch Gold. Well, we're back here with Ron Hara, and Ron, before the break, we just sort of, I mentioned the word malinvestment, which regular listeners of this show now are certainly becoming familiar with, but talk to us about malinvestment and the, and the role that is also playing in the dislocations and the structural problems in the labor markets. Well, this is uh, part of the overall uh, problem that actually goes back to the very structure of the monetary system, and I'm, I'm referring to not just debt-based money, which you brought up earlier, uh, but the idea that you have a, uh, a money monopoly, essentially, which we call the Federal Reserve System, essentially what that is is just a central bank basically owned by other banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and what they do is manipulate, and I say manipulate, because they set interest rates and reserve ratios for other banks. Now, they've done a very poor job, because obviously uh, if, if the purpose of the Federal Reserve was to, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but just think about it logically. If the purpose of the Federal Reserve is to ensure the stability of the banking system, uh, and to uh, moderate uh, the uh, growth or decline in the economy by uh, changing interest rates, for example, uh, as well as other potential uh, actions that they can engage in. What a terrible job. What a poor job they have done. In fact, uh, one might ask the question of what, what use are these central banks? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems like a completely useless institution that's been totally ineffective uh, because we've had a systemic failure based on the very same model uh, of central banking. Of course, this model started in England. It migrated to the United States. Now it's become a global standard. We have an ECB and a central bank in virtually every country uh, that has its own currency. So this model uh, of central banking essentially doesn't work. I mean, there are many problems with it, and one of them is simply the idea that uh, a group of, of, of individuals, a handful of people, can uh, for example, sit in Washington, D.C. and decide what the correct interest rate is for the entire economy. I mean, does that make sense? Does no. that, is that true for every region of the economy? Is it true for every industry in the economy? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, what they've done also is because we have an inflationary monetary system is they've, they've tried to, uh, to maintain interest rates that would maintain economic growth. And, and, of course, those interest rates are generally too low. You have to understand there's an inflationary bias in the monetary system, and there has to be because it's a debt-based system. Right. So when in a debt-based system, the total amount of, of currency in circulation has to constantly increase. Well, that means that debt has to constantly increase. So it's actually a, an unstable system. It's mathematically not stable. Uh, that's been demonstrated. It, is, it can never be stable. Uh, because this idea that you can have infinite growth in a finite world is flawed. This is a flawed concept. It will not work. It did not work. It is not working now, and it is not going to work. So we need to have a new monetary system. So now when it comes to malinvestment, so when you have an unstable system with an inflationary bias uh, where interest rates are consistently too low, 
and they have to be because if if the money supply shrinks you have you have the collapse of debt of course so the system will implode that's why the federal reserve is always talking about deflation it's the boogeyman they're terrified yeah. of, of of deflation rather not inflation they're terrified of deflation and the reason is that if you have if you have debt start to collapse then then currency disappears from the system and that will bring on further collapse in a uh, further collapse in debt so this idea that you can you can stack up uh, an inflationary system by maintaining constant inflation, as Milton Friedman suggested, uh, and then therefore it will never collapse. That's a flawed idea. So the, you have to have a stable system. It's not a stable system. So, so with these inflationary biases, what happens, of course, is that uh, you have episodes where uh, interest rates are too low. In other words, they call it monetary policy. Monetary policy is too lax. Money is too readily available. And as a result, loans are made. Uh, that that shouldn't be made. They're not sound. So when you look at, for example, the dot-com bubble, you had all kinds of businesses that were being created where there were vast amounts of, of, of so-called capital, but for the most part it was debt, uh, being infused into these companies that were creating ridiculous, uh, ridiculous concepts. So they were essentially experimenting. For the most part, uh, you had uh, you know, thousands of entrepreneurs who, who, who had basically never run a business, and they were just trying out different technology ideas on the web, on the Internet. It was all very interesting. The problem mm-hmm. is the vast majority of these companies never had a business model, a product, a customer, any revenue. And, of course, the investment banks were, were hand-holding these companies to the IPO market just as quickly as possible because that's where the big money was. Right. So it was totally unsound, and it's a great example of malinvestment where, mm-hmm. where capital is too readily, and I say capital in you know, only the most loose sense because, of course, real capital comes from savings, not exactly. from debt. Uh, so, so you know, capital was much too readily available. You had all kinds of businesses created that were totally unsound, if not ridiculous. And then you had the news media trumping up this uh, idea of a new economy or the click-and-mortar economy versus the old-fashioned brick-and-mortar economy. And, and in reality, there never were two different economies. That was just not the case. You had a malinvestment economy, the dot-com bubble, and then the rest of the economy, which actually was the only economy that actually did exist. Right. Well, Ron, I'd like to back up just one one minute uh, and ask you again about the sustainability of the system and why it's not stable, because I think that is really what people should realize. It's an unstable system, and so therefore we've pushed ourselves to the wall. We've got so much debt, it cannot be serviced anymore. I think more and more, even in the mainstream, people are understanding that finally. <clears throat> but it is unstable. Why? Because you have to keep increasing more and more debt, and then, you, and then, of course, we talk about the malinvestment, which comes into play too. You just talked about that in the in the uh, tech bubble. And then uh, you get to the point where that debt can no longer be paid because you've, you it's just you don't have enough income to pay it. So then the system either implodes or explodes. Right? Is that the inevitable reason why it's not sustainable? Ultimately, it's not sustainable. Can, you can push it a long time. I mean, since Nixon took us off gold in 1971, we've seen an explosion of credit, debt, and credit. Same thing, debt, debt money. And we've seen inflation, prices rising. We've seen all kinds of booms and busts. Uh, but is that, is that, have I hit the reason why this is an unstable system? Yeah, well, so there's a credit, uh, what's called a credit cycle or sometimes a business cycle, and, and this basically means, because monetary policy is really only set after the economy has moved in one direction or another. So if you have a, a, a bubble, then, of course, you, you generally would you know, raise interest rates when the economy is supposedly overheating, and you'd make money less available and try to moderate the expansion. Uh, and then, of course, if the economy is declining, you can reduce interest rates and try to increase money in circulation and get the economy to grow or ease the downturn. So this is the, the, the ordinary... Uh, process caused by having this type of monetary system is this sort of credit cycle slash business cycle. Now, there are other cycles, of course, but uh, this, in this case, I'm referring specifically to the cycle caused by the manipulation of interest rates rather than allowing the free market to set the rate for borrowing money and rather than having capital come from savings as compared with just conjuring up money out of thin air in the form of debt. Uh, so having said that, as far as 
the super cycle, if you, if you will, as far as you, when you reach a point where the economy is saturated with debt, where mm-hmm. debt has, has pulled away in an exponential curve away from economic growth. Right. Uh, and that's where we're at. That's where we're at, exactly. <clears throat> Once you've reached that point, you know, is, there, is no, there is really no sound, reasonable way to bring those two things back in line with each other. So to answer your question, can they, can they fix it? No. Can they stave off the inevitable collapse? Can they try to come up with some kind of, uh, of m- mathematical formula that will, that will, you know, uh, that will make the system uh, work? Uh, and I think the answer to that is no, but what they can do is try to preserve the system, and that's what's happening, is they're trying to preserve the system in a structural way. And you, you could do that, theoretically, just by devaluing the currency enough. Now, you're going to have a depression, obviously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, by devaluing the currency sufficiently, you'd be reducing the real value of debt. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately, I think, what we're looking at. As long as the as long as the the government can continue to borrow, so that we don't have a collapse in sovereign debt, and as long as banks continue to get bailed out by the Federal Reserve and or by the federal government, then the system can basically seem to go along more or less the way it is. Uh, you know, it can continue. The system can continue, but it but it won't actually fix the economy. You see. So yeah. now you have a political element where, right. you know, if you actually are having a depression, but you're handing free money to banks on Wall Street and, and, and dumping cash into the financial markets to make it look like the economy's functioning and running huge deficits so that you goose the GDP number and make it look like the economy's not declining. But at the same time, in the real world, outside of the financial system, the actual economy, jobs, uh, people's living standards, the ability of small businesses to function, all of those things are, are in decline. The economy is deteriorating. So the question becomes not whether or not the, uh, the system can be fixed. The system can't be fixed. Mm-hmm. It can only be continued through these bailouts and deficits, right? So the wild card in all of this is, is actually the political situation. And I'm talking about, for example, the Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. Now, you, you know, you're, you have a, a, an economy that's in decline and a financial system that, that is basically broken free from, from, from gravity and is launched, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into, into space here because it's mm-hmm. really decoupled mm-hmm. from the economy. Mm-hmm. And yet the folks that are the recipients, the, benefit, the benefactors of, of that, uh, I guess we're going to – I, I want to get into this concept of rent-seeking that you talked about in another really interesting article. But the so-called rent-seekers, the people that are benefiting from that, though, do gain the claims against what's left of the real wealth in the economy, don't they? So oh, that yeah, the people absolutely. that are producing that, the real economy, the people that are really producing something real in the economy – are are losing at the expense of the people that have the claims against that real wealth. Well, yeah, it, it's trivially simple. I mean, when you have a money monopoly that can control whether or not money is lent out uh, through interest rates, for example, and by other mechanisms through bank reserve ratios and even you know lending criteria, there's a lot of central planning really that's taking place. Then you know you have the ability to basically cut off funding and or cut off the the flow of money. And, and, and really choke off businesses and then essentially you, know, you could buy the assets for pennies on the dollar. I mean, it's the nature of the system, I mean, speaking of rent-seeking, the very structure of the system is a rent-seeking structure. I mean, when uh-huh. you have a, a, a monopoly, and I mean the Federal Reserve, which is essentially a private corporation, right. when you have a monopoly that controls the money supply of a country, and that, that monopoly and, and money at the same time is debt, Right, it's issuing debt. Right, Th- that is actually rent-seeking right there. I mean, that's a situation where the the issuance of the national currency is a profit-making business for private interests. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that is that in itself is rent-seeking. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing today is actually the natural. Uh, it's it's come to fruition. It's 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 the it's the predictable course. And I'm talking about going to, from 1913 to 2013. All right. So for for a hundred years of the Federal Reserve, and what what happens in this? So when when a bank can basically create money from nothing, so the money's created ex nihilo, it's from nothing, Mm -hmm. all right? It's like lending fictitious property for real property. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I I loan you my car and I I might expect you to, you know, 
put gas in it or, or pay me a fee for the use of my property. But if I'm a bank and I make a loan, I don't have the money that's being loaned out. Mm-hmm. It's the loan contract itself that creates money. Money is a legal fiction, mm-hmm. you see. Yeah. So in that case, the bank is loaning a fictitious property in exchange for the real property of the borrower. The real property is, of course, the loan collateral or the real production, the wages of that of that worker are being attached by the bank. Right. So that's that's another example of of rent seeking. So the system is rent seeking through and through. And the structure of the system and this is the real purpose of the system. It was created for this purpose. It causes a gradual aggregation of wealth and property and a centralization of of bank reserves and income streams into the banking industry and in particular into those large banks, the five largest banks that basically own the own and control the Fed. Right, so, exactly. So so I'm sorry, go ahead. The result of that today. Yeah, and exactly, and I think that we get back to this question that you raised, and, and clearly in terms of the Fed's stated objectives, as you pointed out, it has been an abysmal failure. Yet, uh, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think, but it hasn't been a failure for everybody. It hasn't been a failure for the for those large banks that are part of this monopoly banking system that you point out, and the monopoly system enables them to fix uh, to fix interest rates where they want to, uh, to where they want to fix them. So, you know, I mean, I, I know that we've had Ed Griffin on this show, and Ed has talked about how he thinks that the Federal Reserve has been an enormous success in terms of its unstated purpose, and that is to bail out the banks and protect the banks. And 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 the, you know, it would certainly make a lot of sense. Uh, but of course, for public relations purposes, they have to make it look as if they really care about us. Mr. Bernanke is out there and testifying before Congress telling us about how, oh, he really feels bad about the unemployed, the people out there on uh, Occupy Wall Street. Well, you know, I, there, we just don't have enough time to go to all the topics I want to talk to you about today, Ron, so sometime we'll have to have you back. But one of the things I do want to get to today is um, this whole issue of how this is going to be resolved. You know, I have no doubt that you're absolutely right that the system is is in the process now in the early stages of a meltdown or an explosion, an implosion or explosion. And we've had John Williams on this show who believes we're heading into hyperinflation, without a doubt. We've had Miss Shedlack on this show who takes the other side, I believe, pretty much, of the equation. Where do you come down, inflation or deflation? How does the system get resolved? Now, it seems to me also, before I let you answer that, what you're talking about here is the you know, the system can be sustained, but at the cost of the real economy, right? Am I right about that? Well, yeah. I mean, so the, basically money printing is the, the sort of colloquialism for, you know, quantitative easing or deficit spending. I mean, really, it's money printing. Right. Uh, and if the system is retained, then the Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party guys or the guys that lose – and the and 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 the and the people that occupy the 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 the, uh, the status quo gains at their expense at least up to a certain point in time. But here's the question: If there's no more real economy, what's left even for the rich guys, the guys that the parasites that are getting the wealth that's left? Ultimately, the whole thing caves in, doesn't it? Well, yeah, but as you pointed out yourself, you know they end up basically owning whatever's left. Right, owning us, the serfs. Well, yeah, I mean it's a return to serfdom. Right. Literally. Yeah, yeah. That's the sad part. So, But, you know, in trying to prepare ourselves for this cataclysmic decline, I don't think I'm overstating what the potential, potential pain is here. How do, we, how do we best protect ourselves? And that, in my way of thinking, has something to do with how you think this is going to play out. You know, if you, if you believe it's a deflationary depression, we've had Robert Prechter on this show, I've had Ian Gordon on this show, I've had Miss Shedlack, I've had a number of deflationists that are absolutely convinced. And, you know, if you buy Robert Prechter's idea, you're in cash, you're in dollars. If you buy John Williams' idea, you're, you want to stay as far away from dollars, you want to get into gold, you want to get into tangibles that can't lose their intrinsic value because of the, because of the fraud that's being committed by our government and the bankers. So where do you come down on this, and how do, you, how do you think it's going to play out? Well, so first of all, I think it's very important to understand that deflation and inflation are things that can happen simultaneously. Sure, and they are. Yeah, and I know that that sounds very counterintuitive and, and, and maybe not possible on its face. It sounds like a paradox. 
and and perhaps it is in one sense. But as I mentioned at the beginning uh, of our conversation, you can have monetary inflation or deflation, where the amount of money increases or decreases. You can have uh, price inflation or deflation, where prices rise and fall. And of course, there are many reasons why prices could rise or fall. Prices could rise for imported goods, but not for domestic production. Uh, and then, of course, you can have you can speak of in, of debt in terms of debt inflation or debt deflation, simply meaning that the amount of debt is increasing or decreasing. Uh, and so uh, you can have both at the same time. So we're seeing, in fact, that, that goes back to Into the Abyss, is that we have debt deflation happening right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we hear in the news media, for example, that consumers are delevering, meaning right. that, that they're reducing the total amount of debt. Of course, uh, you know, what's not being said is, is that what's happening is those debts are being paid down partly as a result of defaults and partly because there's no new lending. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea that consumers have chosen not to yeah. borrow and that they've yeah. decided to pay off their debts is really quite misleading and ridiculous. That's, that's just not the case. But you hear that, you know, okay, so consumer debt might be falling slightly, uh, gradually uh, re- becoming, uh, gr- gradually moving lower. Uh, but at the same time, you have a, a policy response on the part of the Federal Reserve and the federal government that I will say is radically inflationary. It's not just inflationary. It's radically inflationary. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Federal Reserve handed out $16.1 trillion during yeah. the crisis. That's more cash than the entire GDP of the United States. Mm-hmm. All right. We're running federal deficits that are almost, uh, well, not quite, twice the, the actual revenue. So federal government revenue, it's a, let's say it's approximately $2 trillion a year in, in tax revenue, and we're spending uh, $3.8 uh, or, or so trillion in, in, in federal government uh, expenses. So, you know, that additional now for 2010 or fiscal 2011, I believe, was $1.3 trillion deficit. That $1.3 trillion is inflation. $1.3 trillion, it's almost 10% of GDP. Mm-hmm. And that's inflation. Mm-hmm. And, and so at the same time, of course, we're being told by the BLS that inflation is like, what, 2%, yeah. 3%? So, but just the federal government deficit by itself is 10% of GDP. Forget about the Federal Reserve uh, buying $3 trillion worth mm-hmm. of treasuries and, $3 trillion, uh, and a couple of trillion dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities, also inflationary. So I think you know, the inflationists see the government trapped uh, and the Federal Reserve trapped in this mode where there's no end of bailouts, that the yeah. inflationary policy response is a self-feeding cycle that they can't get out. They can start it, but they can't stop it. They have to keep coming back and doing more and more money printing. Otherwise, the, the merry-go-round stops. Uh, so that's the inflation argument in a nutshell. And, and John Williams actually goes into much more detail. I read his uh, hyperinflation special report. I recommend that to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very uh, detailed and very cogent uh, and you know, very much to the point as to uh, whether or not the federal government can meet its obligations. And his view is that you know, they're going to essentially print the money to try to meet their obligations, and that that's going to cause hyperinflation. And, it, and, and if that's what happens, then he's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it certainly is worth reading, uh, and I would uh, tell our listeners that it's Shadow Government Statistics, I think is the name of his website or his, his service. If they just uh, Google John Williams, they can find his service, and it is, it is definitely worth reading, no question about that. Um, okay, so it, I guess your answer is it's, it's most likely you think it's going to go hyperinflation. Uh, that is my personal opinion. Now, sure. I, I want to point out a couple other things real quick. One mm-hmm. is that the, the Federal Reserve, and I'm, I mean specifically Ben Bernanke and, and the Board of Governors, they believe that they can control inflation. Right. And, right. and there are various mechanisms by which they can uh, try to moderate the rate of inflation. At the same time, that you know, there's, there's, a, there's a confidence factor. There's a psychological mm-hmm. factor. Behavioral economics plays very large into this picture because mm-hmm. the monetary system is itself dependent on confidence. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's, you know, by analogy, it's kind of like a confidence game or a scam, right? right? Because the banks don't really have any money, right? Uh, so uh, basically, 
the, the system itself is, is not stable in that sense. And, mm-hmm. and so there's this belief that, you know, if you can maintain confidence, you can just sort of keep printing money and you can keep gaming the numbers and the system will just sort of go on mm-hmm. and therefore you can control the outcome. Mm-hmm. And my own opinion is that they cannot control the outcome, that mm-hmm. they believe they control the, control the outcome because they've engaged in various kinds of interventions and manipulations in the market and they've had results that seem to be consistent with their intentions, not in every case, obviously, but enough for them to believe that they can control the outcome of this situation. I personally think that that's the illusion of control. It's just like a gambler in Vegas. Mm-hmm. He keeps rolling the dice, and he believes that, you know, if he blows on the dice or, you know, if he, if he just does the right thing, he can get that lucky seven or whatever it is. The idea that, you know, if you get a couple of good results in a row, you think that you're in control of the situation, and now you believe you're on a winning streak, and, you know, that's totally irrational. It's a fantasy. The idea that you're in control of the outcome is totally absurd. And, of course, you know, then you go into these gambling addicts. They have these systems that they use. It's a, they, you know, it's a sure thing because they've got a system, right? We all know that that's madness, right? But somehow we don't see the clear analogy that the, these, these monetary policies are, are exactly the same kind of phenomenon. The theories that are being used here to manipulate the money supply and the economy are, are just as unpredictable and unstable. We do not have a stable system at this time because we don't have a stable monetary system. The very structure is not stable. It's unsound. Right. Until that changes, any thought that they're in control of the outcome is a fantasy. Well, it would certainly seem that what the Fed is engaged in and what the policymakers in general are engaged in, and I would take it a step further and say what the mass media is is engaged in, is mass mind control. And with respect to mass mind control, uh, I sort of have a feeling that uh, some of the some of the politics that are going on and some of the debates that are going on, there's a little bit of spin control, maybe a lot of spin going on uh, with respect to one candidate, and I think it's crystal clear in my mind why that is going on based on the things you just told us, uh, Ron, and that is if the system is going to be maintained, you have to keep people from understanding what's really going on. The stuff you're talking about here, the stuff Ron Paul's talking about, the only candidate, as you pointed out, that really seems to have a grasp of what the problem is, what the why we're having these problems, why the dislocations in the markets are going on. Uh, And so we have to go to commercial break. You know, Ron, there was so much more to talk to you about. I wanted to get more into this uh, uh, rent, uh, renting idea, this uh, rent seeking idea, a whole lot of other things. I didn't even get to the Utah gold issue, the, the legislation that was passed in Utah. So maybe we have to have you come back real soon. But I would like to invite you, if you have the time, to stick around on the other side of the break because we do have Jeff Deist, Ron Paul's chief of staff, is going to be with us. Uh, could you stick with us? Uh, yeah, sure. Great. Okay, good. Glad to uh, have you stick with us. And we'll be right back. We have to go to commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be with uh, with Jeff Deist, Ron Paul's chief of staff. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Merex Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merex's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm really delighted to have with me once again Ron Paul's Chief of Staff, Jeff Dice, a personal friend of mine and uh, a man that I've known now for a number of years. Uh, really uh, great to know uh, Jeff. And Ron Hara has agreed to stick with us, so Ron may have a question for Jeff. But really what I'd like to do, Jeff, is start out by asking you uh, to explain Ron Paul's um, plan to cut government spending by a trillion dollars. Could you just give our listeners a sense of the highlights, uh, the main points there? Jay, it's pretty simple, and it, it's really, it, it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy. Right. I mean, you know, we've come to a point where we're amassing more than a trillion dollars in new debt in a single year, mm-hmm. okay, a single year of federal spending. So all we have to do to cut a trillion dollars, in effect, is go back to about 2006 levels of spending, federal spending. That's all it would take. I mean, does anybody think that the federal government was much too small in, in just five years ago in 2006? Well, yeah, there are probably some people who do think that, but there probably not too many are. On this but show. It, you know, it, basically, what Ron's calling for, from as as legislation, is hey, let's get rid of some of these agencies that not only don't do what they they purport to do, but they actually have a lot of very nefarious sort of political uh, purposes. So these would be like energy, uh, HUD, commerce, education, these things that that. Not only do they spend a lot of money, but they really do the opposite of what they say they're going to do. In other words, the Department of Education grows throughout the 20th century. In America, throughout the 20th century, American education gets worse. Right. You know, this sort of thing. Um, and really, between that and cutting out some of the spending on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it really isn't all that difficult to do as a budgetary or fiscal matter. What it What's very difficult is to sell this stuff as a political matter because the American public, for, for all of their talk of disgust with the politicians, is addicted to all the spending, whether that's in the form of public sector employees, unions, etc., or, you know, uh, people who are connected to the government through, you know, the vast uh, government contracting bureaucracy or, or they, you know, they just like their Social Security and their Medicare, whatever it might be. Uh, you got to hand it to the left. They did a great job in the 20th century of basically turning every voter into a patron of sorts. Mm-hmm. So, but that's basically those are those are the main ideas. Uh, and certainly, I, mean, I can hear right away that Fox or some of these, you know, people in the Republican Party would be talking about, you know, how unsafe we would be if we cut military spending. 
Well, it, it's absolutely absurd. What Ron purports to cut is is uh, really, for, for the moment anyway, only a fraction of about the $750 billion we spend a year um, through DOD. But as Ron always points out, Ron Paul, um, it's, it's not defense spending. It's military spending. Right. Uh, we, we could have absolutely serviceable national defense for America, not for the rest of the world, for a fraction of the $750 billion we spend. Right, and I think it's really interesting to note that uh, I think Ron said that he gets more support, more votes uh, from the military, people that are in the military, than all the rest of the Republican candidates combined. Absolutely, he gets more donations That's from both active duty and, and reserve military than, uh, than Mr. Obama or the entire GOP field. So that's something that... Uh, he likes to bring up, needless to say. Right. Hi, this is Ron Hera. I think the reason for that is clear, and that is that the people who serve in the military have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, very good. He also hears quite a bit from the, the reservists, and in what you know, we all have to understand this is for many of them. This is not what they signed up for. Uh-huh. You know, two, three, four <clears throat> tours of the Middle East. Um, so we've reached a point now where this whole thing is, is going on. This whole phony war on terror is now a decade old, and it's cost us three between you know about three or four trillion dollars. Um, so you know this, and frankly, there's also a lot of people on the right who are more predisposed to oppose all this spending now that it's Obama doing it. So you know, between time and, and having W not the president anymore, even the, the right wing has come around on the war spending. Yeah, interesting. Well, Ron Hara, I would say that uh, I, I definitely agree with you, certainly uh, with respect to the, say, the upper-ranking, higher-ranking, better-educated members of, of the military. I've heard some, you know, there seems to be a, certainly a, a respect for the Constitution of the United States among those folks. You know, you, you have to wonder about some of the people that might be more rank-and-file, but definitely I, I think you're onto something there, Ron, when you suggest that. Well, Jeff, I, I'm wondering... Um, Ron Paul has, there's a debate tonight. Tell our listeners about tonight. When, what time is that going to take place, and, and where can they see it? Well, so there's a b- debate tonight in Las Vegas, and it is on uh, CNN. Uh-huh. And uh, it starts, let me just make sure here, uh, I believe at 8 o'clock Eastern. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's uh, unlike the last one, which was on Bloomberg and not seen by many. Yeah. But, you know, they, they tend to be these lengthy exercises in um, hearing more and more boilerplate, more and more the same from these plastic men yeah. uh, known as the, as the field other than Ron, in my opinion. But uh, nonetheless, we've got another one tonight, and I believe that the focus is going to be more on foreign policy. Okay. Well, that would be interesting. That, that will probably really pit Ron against most of the other Republicans. Is there anyone else that could be, you know, that isn't hawkish uh, among the candidates in the Republican Party and want to spend, always give the military whatever they want or whatever... Uh, not the military, but the military-industrial complex wants, perhaps. Well, I'm not sure, you know, how hawkish they are so much. But I, but I do know that Ron has single-handedly shifted the debate in a huge way when it comes to military adventurism, you know, both in, in running four years ago and in running now. So I think that in and of itself is a huge achievement. And as Dr. Paul always says, you know, it really doesn't matter um, – who we elect in terms of our foreign policy. You could go and elect a, a neoconservative fantasy like John Bolton, or you could go elect, uh, you know, Barack Obama or uh, or George McGovern or Ron Paul or anybody in between. And, and at the end of the day, our foreign policy is going to be Ron Paul's foreign policy because the troops are going to come home. Mm-hmm. That's for the very simple reason that we're broke. Okay. And our ability to borrow is coming to an end. So right. between those two things, if you if you don't have the money and you can't borrow the money, um, at some point you have to actually cut back your spending. And the American people are going to reject foreign wars way far before they're going to reject Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. Ron Hera, do you have any thoughts, any questions? Well, like? yeah, I think the, the you know I think the average American. I, I, if you did a poll, I would I would estimate that the average American would would strongly support the military and law enforcement. That'd be the majority. However, uh, supporting the military uh, and and being in favor of a strong national defense, 
doesn't mean that you have to have 700 military bases all around the world. It doesn't mean that you have to be engaged in three different foreign wars with a fourth one potentially on the horizon. I mean, this is completely unsustainable. There's no question about that. It's financially unworkable. And I don't think that the American people would be in favor uh, of continuing this trend. Yeah. So, Ron, unsustainability, again, there's that word. Jeff, I think you're both saying that this is unsustainable. But how do you get the American people to understand that? Because, you know, that we don't need all those bases around the world. Ron Paul's saying it, but all the other candidates are saying, oh, well, let's be careful, you know, because we don't want them, we don't, we don't want more attacks over here, even though, obviously, uh, you know, Ron Paul has pointed out that, that, uh, you know, work and reports coming out of our own CIA has, has suggested that the reason we were hit in 9-11 is because we've been fooling around in Saudi Arabia and other places, uh, imposing our will on, on people uh, and our, uh, you know, our, our policies. But how, do, how does it, I guess, I guess maybe the answer is that when we're broke, people will start really looking at, at what hurts the least to cut. Is that where it's going, perhaps? Well, I think so. I think it's, it's going to be one with the economic argument, because if we don't change our ways, we, our only option is going to be papering over uh, this spending with further monetization of debt. And at some point, that'll create a whipsaw effect, a, ho- a horrific catch-22, where our interest payments become a much, much bigger part of our annual federal budget than they are right now. And then no. at some point, you, you begin to have everything implode. So hopefully you can reason with the American people before that day comes, but it's going to have to be pretty rapid. Well, it would seem to me that if, if finally interest rates, the markets had their way and interest rates actually rose dramatically, that, that would be a tipping point, or it would certainly send us down the slope very rapidly. Ron Hara, any, any idea about that? Are we yeah, here? Yeah, I think, that, uh, I think that, that the federal government can basically force U.S. institutions into treasuries, and I, I think we've already seen a start of that uh, with the emergency measures taken by the Treasury during the, the, uh, the, the budget ceiling, the, the, the debt ceiling debate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that will artificially hold interest rates down, and also the Federal Reserve can always participate in the Treasury auctions in order to, to depress the Treasury bond yields, right. which, uh, which I think of as kind of real interest rates. It's not technically the, what real interest rates are, but, uh, you know, that's the real rate of borrowing money. Right. So, uh, you know, I think they can, they can basically manipulate those interest rates. That doesn't change the overall situation. I mean, the idea that debt service is, is an ever-growing proportion of the federal budget, that's absolutely correct, and it clearly is on an unsustainable track right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I'd like to get a little bit to this notion that uh, Herman Cain's 999 uh, tax program. Jeff, would you like to comment on that? Well, I mean, first of all, it would force the entire country to figure out, I guess, via its cash registers, how to compute and remit a a new national sales tax to the federal government. So that in and of itself is a huge logistical challenge, and and it also would presumably add 9% to, you know, things like buying a new car (laughs) or a dishwasher, in other words, big ticket items. But really, you know, Congressman Paul views tax reform schemes as, as smokescreen. In other words, the only issue here is, do do we reduce or eliminate an existing tax? Uh That should be the sole and only focus. The the federal government does not need three or four trillion dollars a year in tax revenues. That's absurd. We need to reject that and seek ways to reduce or eliminate an existing tax. Any other scheme or plan, flat tax, national retail sales tax, whatever you want to do, becomes nothing more than a shell game where you're moving around the tax burden, but still accepting the underlying premise that, oh, it's, it's fair and just and necessary for the federal government to collect all this money. Right. And then, then all you're doing is pitting taxpayers against each other right. uh, well, to, see, certainly... to see which group wins and which group loses. So we're talking about another scheme in, instead of really fixing and, and turning the government back to the people, I guess. And we don't have time, unfortunately, Jeff, uh, to get into some of the other issues. Uh, Herman Cain, of course, is a Federal Reserve a, for, a former Federal Reserve officer, so would have loved to have, uh, you know, talked a little bit about some of that and his his claim that he was all in favor of an audit of the Fed, of course, uh, and denying that he ever was against it when in the last debate. Well, it's going to be interesting tonight, again, to watch um, to hear what Ron Paul has to say if if they let him if they let him speak to the extent they do let him speak. I want to thank both of you. Ron, thanks so much for coming on our show for the first time. Hope to have you back sometime again. Jeff, as always, thank you for coming on and sharing 
your insights and also uh, what's going on in Ron Paul's office. Thanks very much. Folks, don't go away. We've got to go to commercial break, and when I come back, I'm going to be back with Ted Ohashi on some market thoughts. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Merrick's Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merrick's and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merrick's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Lucky Strike Resources Limited conducts due diligence drilling on the claim with a historical resource of 1.5 billion tons of coal in Mongolia. The project is directly north of China, where the coal consumption tripled in the last 10 years to 3.2 billion tons in 2010. Lucky Strike's management team has a proven track record, having contributed significantly in the building of a multi-billion dollar company operating in China. Please visit our website at www.luckystrikeresources.com Come and get in on this investment opportunity at the ground floor. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love and ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Time is a good time uh, for the, some closing thoughts on today's show. Uh, I do want to mention before uh, I start talking to Ted Ohashi, who's uh, with me again. We haven't talked in some time. Uh, one of the sponsors I think that, that are really, really worth taking a look at right now, especially as their share price has gone down, uh, is Rypatch. Um, Rypatch uh, is a company that has uh, 3.9 million ounces of gold, uh, it has a goal, and I think a very realistic goal, of uh, outlining some 10 million ounces. It's got a market cap of $49 million right now in spite of 3.9 million open pitable ounces of gold um, and, and a really strong management team. So you might want to take a look at, uh, at Rye Patch. They had recently reported 34 over an ounce of gold, uh, a sample of over an ounce of gold, and let's see, we're talking about multiple ounces of silver per ton. Uh, on one of its properties. This is a, a company, I think. Again, we will be talking to the uh, CEO of Rypatch again sometime in the next few weeks, uh, so you'll have a chance to learn more about that company. In the meantime, uh, I want to welcome Ted Ohashi. Hi, Jay. How are you? Really good, Ted. Now, you were just uh, at, at the Chicago Resource Expo this last weekend. It's a show that I've enjoyed, enjoyed going to. I go there about once a year, not twice uh, these days. But tell us a little bit about it. We've only got about four minutes left, Ted, but tell us a little bit about the Chicago Resource Expo that you just went to last weekend. Sure. Well, um, they had a record number of people signed up to, uh, uh, to attend the show. Uh, there were a few uh, less companies than there were in the spring, uh, and I think that reflects the market. But uh, uh, the, the general sentiment was um, basically all roads lead to gold. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that was whether uh, they were, there were the expert speakers um, or uh, a corporate management. Uh, they were all very much inclined that way. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a really good talk uh, was given by um, Malcolm Geeson, 
uh, of uh, Encompass uh, Fund. Uh-huh. Um, and um, they invest in uh, smaller cap resource stocks, uh, uh, many of the types of companies that you feature on your show so regularly. Um, and uh, uh, they've been the top fund in 2009 and 2010, or in the top five both years. Um, and so uh, he was giving some uh, ideas as to uh, what to look for in, in, in those kinds of companies. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't do justice to his comments in two or three minutes here, uh, but uh, if you go to his website, uh, www.encompassfunds.com, uh, he said that uh, he would have his presentation available there. All right. Uh, 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 We've got two minutes left, Ted. Any companies mm-hmm. that you saw that you liked? Yeah, quite a few. Again, the, the theme was uh, was very um, similar, uh, and and it was that uh, these are very attractive companies uh, that were attractive three months ago, uh, kind of like you mentioned with Rypatch, um, and now you can buy them for twenty to thirty to forty percent off. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Gold Gold Resources uh, was certainly uh, had a great combination of management who's done it before. Uh, and a great property in Mexico. Uh, Taku Gold was a was a company with uh, a great story for gold in the Yukon and northern British Columbia. Uh, Mega Precious Metals caught my attention because uh, they're currently trading at about thirteen dollars an ounce. Uh, and one of uh, Geeson's guidelines that he gave was that uh, uh, companies historically trade at, at between seventy to one hundred and twenty dollars an ounce mm-hmm. uh, of resource in the ground. So. Uh, you know, companies like that are very uh, uh, undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like to give a little plug for uh, a company that I've talked about here uh, on several occasions in the past, uh, Belizean Gold Corp, um, which is uh, now in production and, and operating. And uh, and I did a presentation for them. Um, and um, many of these companies also you can uh, go to Investment Pitch's website, um, and you'll find uh, uh, interviews or uh, um, news release uh, videos and things of that nature to, uh, to just help you with your due diligence process. Well, that's a good idea. Uh, Ted, is the Belizean uh, Gold Company, is that still a private company or, or, or not? Is it, yes, it is. Is it, it a public? It, it is still a private company, uh, but uh, uh, probably uh, it will be public by uh, next spring. Okay, well, very interesting. That's really about all the time we have, uh, Ted. Unfortunately, we could talk about a whole lot of other things. I see a bunch of the notes that you sent me. Uh, a lot of more questions could be asked if we had the time. So we'll have you back on sometime very soon again. Folks, uh, as I say, that's all the time we have. I want to thank each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Network uh, business uh, channel. I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my senior executive producer, and Justin Jackman for making this show uh, viable. And I also um, want to mention that next week we're going to, I'm going to be traveling to Asia, but we have done a program where we will be uh, playing back some of the, uh, some speeches from John Kennedy, uh, from Richard Nixon and President Eisenhower, and also Ron Paul uh, will be on the show again to talk about uh, some of the issues that, that really relate to some of the warnings that Kennedy and Eisenhower gave about the military-industrial complex, about secret societies, and so forth. I don't think you're going to want to miss next week. So uh, we hope that you will tune in next week. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.